I'm Matt Serdahl. Welcome to Mythic Christ, reawakening mythic imagination in earth, the self, and the divine. Mythic Christ podcast offers an experiential bridge between imagination, archetype, and sacred story to re-mystify the divine image within, to summon spiritual renewal and action in these times. This is Mythic Christ, reawakening mythic imagination in earth, the self, and the divine. I was born in the woods. As a child, I grew up in Shoreline, a small community just north of Seattle, right near Lake Washington, at the bottom of a steep hill. And down at the bottom of the hill was a cul-de-sac. At the far end, my childhood home, pressed into the tree line of a wooded area, the place that I was born. A little creek flowed at the back edge of our property, and at the front of the wood of my childhood imagination was a magic door, a door into mystery in the imagination. It was my birthplace, where imagination was awakened for the first time, a world of mystery and senses of touch and of play, of emotion and wild wonder. A small split log bridge crossed the creek through that magic door surrounded on one side by a compost bin. It created a trampled path through the thick brambles and blackberry and salmonberry bushes. That smell in the spring and summer, that fragrance, erotic, bursting with wet berry blood. I remember well that smell mingled with the decaying cut grass and leaves from that compost pile, the steam that would rise up in the morning. Saturdays were cartoon days, Uh, and other than that, I worked in the yard most of the day. But when I crossed this bridge, this magic threshold, I stepped into a new and mysterious world, one that was absolutely alive. I knew it. It was a place itself that was aware of my presence. It welcomed me as a traveler, and I never arrived empty, but I came carrying questions, eyes wide open with astonishment, bearing the wild emotions and movement of my body, armed with awe and longing to shed form as I passed into the shadows. A new world, every day, every moment, would open up before me. I was brushed by branched beings that whispered in their leafy speech, Remember. Careful of the shimmering threaded networks of the micro-worlds of the spiders, I would greet them, these beings assiduously working away, designing meticulous fibrous structures like little construction workers. Even then, as a young boy, sensing that their ritual at this time of day, as weavers of a membrane between this world and the world that I arrived from, a world always waiting for me, the upper canopy of the forest, a panoply of birdsong, and the dancing play of light and shadow, 
floating down through the layers above. Here I could see the air. I could palpably feel, smell, see the breath of the woods. The atmosphere was cool and damp with the peaty smell of moss-covered tree stumps, lichen, hanging usnia, like magical bearded beings. And what I learned as a child was that a real, living, breathing world awaited outside my home, just across that little creek. I intuitively understood that the woods knew something about me that I did not know. I could feel this world as it opened for me was not just one of fantasy, not just one of my own childhood imagination. It was my imagination curled up inside of its imagination, like a sleeping bear. The woods even then taught me how to listen. I learned how to overhear what it was thinking and feeling, to trust that I, as a young boy, was thinking feeling, longing, and imagining, to trust that I was playing together amidst decomposing old growth stumps, enacting a new drama from this mysterious nexus of entangled imagination. The woods behind my childhood home was my first teacher in the school of mythic imagination, and I am forever in her debt. That's my story. The story of the place where I was born. It's my story of the beginning of so many different threads that would reach out throughout my life. So what is a story? A story is, in fact, not a monologue. It's more like a mycologue. It's a chorus of imaginal perspectives, of entangled feeling, embodiment, growth, nutriment. A story is a call and response entangled in heated conversation. It's a panoply of distinct voices arriving in different forms. Each character is alive if we pay attention. Each character a mind and a will of its own in a certain sense. The main event of the story is not even in the words themselves, but the interstitial spaces, the hollows and ravines in which the vines of imagination might grow the in-between of harmony and discord where something alive is composting, something numinous like currents of conflict and energy and the quiet eddies of stillness. As humans, we imagine in story. We construct worlds out of stories. We are shaped by stories. We live in stories. We are homopoeta, meaning-makers, Community, story, ritual, these are all primal, instinctual, archetypal layers in our inherited memory, our phylogenetic memory at the species level. And this story pattern beats in our blood, it's in our bones. In a certain sense, stories are animals. They're wild animals that live in our blood. They bray and they howl. They're clothed in certain oral spontaneity, these stories. They're performative, they're events, they conjure a whole field of imagination and memory in the telling. They draw upon the senses, memory, and imagination. Story is performative, oral, it lives on in our bodies, it breathes and is transmitted through the green flesh and bone, bark and fur. Sean Kane in The Wisdom of the Myth Tellers says, quote, It is difficult nowadays to talk 
intelligently about myth, and to speak about it at all is to mark our distance from some hundred thousand years of life on this planet, when most of human knowledge was conveyed by oral memory. Now, even our definition of myth is a poor remembrance." End quote. Myth. Myth is the oldest form of story. It's not fantasy thinking. It's not something that is categorically untrue or even something that didn't happen but happens everywhere, whatever that definition means. Myth is not a vacation from reality. Myth leads us more deeply into reality, for it is experience, a kind of consciousness. The Greek word mythos goes back to Aristotle and probably much further before. The word mythos speaks to the shape of myth, the thread of movement in the narrative itself. Movement. Myth is story that wants to move. It wants to be embodied, enacted as in a drama, reenacted even. Something about myth mimics the seasons and the cycles of nature. It imitates those powers and processes in which we are intimately embedded. Myth is something wildly true everywhere. In fact, mythologist Martin Shaw says, Myth is the wildest way of telling the truth. One way I, that's helped me to think about myth is that it is actually a landscape. It's an entire ecosystem of imagination and depth, of land and embodiment, of performance and song, of ritual and enactment, of right relatedness to sacred place in the more than human community. Myth is a pattern of right relatedness. Our earliest archaeological evidence in the Lascaux Caves in France shows symbols painted by hand in blood-red ochre pigment, smeared like blood on womb-like cave walls. These images speak of one world, the Unus Mundus, that our earliest ancestors lived in, when human was animal and animal was divine, and all of life was storied. Long before writing, an oral lexicon of sounds and symbols reflected participation in an animate world. So myth is a storied and instinctual way of being in relationship, of being held, of being contained by all that is alive, sentient and real. Animate. Myth tethers us like an umbilical cord to the mysteries of life and death. Myth orients us on our great quest for origins and the beginnings of things. It tethers us to the more than human others with which we share kinship. It anchors us to deep memory, to cosmos, to life itself. Martin Shaw says, quote, Earth thinks in myth, end quote. And just perhaps we are here to overhear it and participate. John Kane, in his astounding book, Wisdom of the Mythtellers, says this, quote, Mythtelling assumes that the stories already exist in nature, waiting to be overheard by humans who will listen for them. Such stories have a semi-wild existence. They are just barely domesticated, and so are free to enact the patterns of the natural world, end quote. 
The stories already exist in nature. They have a semi-wild existence, just barely domesticated. Sean Kane speaks to the boundary waters of myth that flow right on the edge of human consciousness and the more-than-human world. Waters that bubble up in the interstitial spaces between archetype and instinct. A realm of pure animacy, where the plants speak in dreams, and the rivers sing a sacred story of place. In the beginning was the song. The earliest myth-tellers learned to listen in, to attune to this singing, to overhear the great choral performance of nature. In the beginning was not the word, but the singing. Do we hear the stars singing? The rivers laughing? Weeping, the trees whispering. In our flat and brittle world where language has been stripped mind of its mana, its original magic, and its power harnessed for political abuse in a possessive and violent dominion, we may feel the intense pressure of tectonic unseen psychic forces shifting underneath our world, violating some unspoken contract that's been broken. As Carl Jung said, quote, we live in an age between myths, end quote. And we cannot survive without a myth. We long for stories that give us meaning, that summon us forth those deep places where the world meets us, stories that grant us courage and hope and clarity in unraveling and violent times. Yet there is an awakening of individuals today who long to enter the visionary realm of the deep imagination, who desire to touch communion with the sacred mysteries at the heart of life. We stand at a threshold we can't see, one for which we have lost the language. The terrain on the other side offers us no maps. This uncertainty has pointed us toward the ancient stories. Many are plumbing the depths of the old myths that once guided communities through perilous times. And yet even our religious institutions still carry the great seed images of mythic imagination that has evolved alongside human consciousness like runes on a standing stone or hieroglyphs on a cave wall, we have lost access to this realm because we have lost access to our capacity for mythic imagination. These seed images, these mythologems, are elemental motifs, the recurrent themes of myth. Images of a universal flood or a firebringer or a world redeemer these motifs are like seeds planted, whose roots span across oceans and epochs, languages and cultures. They are universal energetic patterns of behavior. They're archetypes. Simply put, myth is the story we live in. Myth is the story we live as together. Myth weaves us into the world because it is in fact the deep world in which we live. 
But this world doesn't want to be parceled, marketed, and sold. Its desire is to live through us so that we will live not over it, but within it. A world already knocking at our door with malleable meaning. Myth is the world around us and the world within us, so what we see in our printed books and have heard in our classrooms is only the husk, it's the shed skin of a living world conversing with a particular people in a particular time. A sensual and sinuous world embedded in specific and sacred landscape. But in actuality, myth is the language of the soul. It speaks in the images of dreams, which is why Martin Shaw says Earth thinks in myth. It does not rightly belong to us in any age, because myth belongs to itself, its own shy and wild animal. We're going to explore the anatomy of myth. We're going to explore myth as boundary, as crossing, as a dimension of time, as a body, and as a landscape. Myth-telling is a boundary. As Sean Kane defines myth-telling, quote, The ideas and emotions of the earth expressed through stories, stories distilled from millennia of treading warily in nature rather than undertaking to rearrange her furniture, end quote. Boundary. Early humanity negotiated a dialogue with nature. Quote, an affectionate counterpoint to Earth's voices with no ambition to direct them or force them to give up their meanings. Myth-telling is a boundary inviting us to sacred approach, inviting us to approach with reverence, to respect its autonomy. Myth-telling is about approach. How do we approach Earth as sacred other? As John O'Donohue says, when we approach with reverence, great things decide to approach us. Myth is a kind of boundary between two worlds, and like a landscape, it offers itself through the threshold of the deep imagination. This is the place where the two worlds touch. Boundary. Foreshore. A wooded forest. Canyon. In pre-Neolithic Stone Age myths, myths held boundaries in terms of taboo, lines that must not be crossed. Boundary and approach holds the idea of traverse and transgression, both originating in the old word tra, which means to cross over, which is the word we get trance. A boundary marks sacred relationship, the possibility of conversation. In the Genesis myth that the fourth evangelist picks up on, he says, In the beginning was the logos, the telling, the overhearing, and the story itself, unfolding worlds, shaping that which was without form, filling that which was empty of meaning. In the beginning... This sacred conversation, standing at the boundary of creation, is alluded to by Martin Shaw, who speaks to the triadic nature of myth-telling. It's not just the word, but there's the teller in the beginning. There's your imagination putting flesh on the bones of the story. And then there's the story itself, its own autonomous and living being, its own headwaters, flowing shaping, creating, 
destroying worlds within worlds. Maintaining the sacred bond and boundary with place is absolutely essential for myth. As it is with people, sacred places must be protected and respected for their own sake, not what we can get out of them. Sean Kane says, quote, The stories remembered by the myth-tellers were pictures of the flow of life and information from special places on earth where that energy was felt most keenly. Once the power of the place is lost to memory, myth is uprooted, end quote. The flow of life and information from sacred places. Once the power of the place is lost, myth is uprooted. There is a direct relationship between myth and land. And we see the animistic power of place still enshrined in the sacred place names of the Hebrew scriptures. The Oaks of Mamre, Beth-El, and countless others. Aboriginal author Tyson Yunkaporta speaks in his seminal work, Sand Talk, of kinship mind and story mind. Story mind is performative and oral dramatization, you could say. Story mind fleshes out the underlying pattern that allows us to connect with a larger meaning being dreamed. Story mind is that which characterizes and personifies the other in order to be in relationship. It personifies the mysteries of nature that help us connect deeply and sympathetically within a larger field of meaning and personhood. Kinship mind, on the other hand, navigates the relationships themselves, the interstitial spaces, the mycelial network of interdependence on which we rely in our relationship with the other, and the connectedness between the human and the more-than-human worlds. Kinship mind is really about the communication across boundaries that we often call sacred reciprocity. This approach of humility, awe, and patient sympathetic desire for dialogue with nature herself, with the animate reality of life. So beautifully exemplified by the old myth-tellers who stewarded that sacred boundary of communication with the land, with earth, has been all but lost to us as a Western society. The great Robert Bringhurst speaks of learning the language and ways of each culture he apprenticed himself for long periods of time to, to really get to know the people, their stories, the land, and particularly the subtle nuances of the language itself. Bringhurst was able to infuse the original poetic telling of the myth-tellers. Bringhurst is said to speak in the silence, quote, at thought's edge, end quote, where the gods come unseen to drink. The silence at thought's edge where the gods come to drink. Hmm. It's in this sense that myth is story of the gods, the powers. A myth can be said to be a peculiar creature in this sense, feral and wary, quietly searching for water's edge, that liminal connection between the human and the more than human. Myths are stories with teeth, feather, claw. They are instinctual energies that slither across the ground at night, moving through myth-tellings into the listening circle gathered around the fire. 
These are stories that shape, shift, and eat, copulate, and shit. Myths are more like animals than human-contrived stories, because they are animate, ensouled in breath, bone, and sound, found on the tongue, tasted in the body. Myths activate that storehouse of primal images that Jung called the collective unconscious. They are the ark in the story form, carrying the sacred treasure of numinous reality. The old myth-tellers knew this is their world, the world of the myth, not ours. Myth-time is womb-time. Time. Lunar consciousness. It hides from the solar gaze of the day world and the ego's needs and plans. For in the beginning, before the light of consciousness, way back in the secret crypt of the night, way down in the primal layers of the psyche, there lives darkness, water, woods, forest, fire. Moss-covered trees wet with the smell of peat, damp leaves like milk-soggy cereal flakes that stink with pungent decay. And under the growth there is always decay, under the birth always death. Clay, breath, fire, greening life, mystery. We will explore myth time in another podcast and mapping of myth. Myth is also body, and the body of myth is landscape. Myth is story roots humans in living in sentient landscapes out of which those stories in our own consciousness and culture first emerged. Kane says, quote, It seems, rather, as if the myth-tellers sing of whole sets of ecological relationships which can or might reveal their facets as this and as that god. The myth-tellers speak of the powers in relation to each other and with an eye to the whole ecology, not separable functions of it, end quote. The oral nature of story encodes the landscape with specific ritual knowledge of that relationship to Earth's powers. So myth-telling has to do with what Tyson Yunkaporta calls dreaming mind. Dreaming mind is attuned to the depth dimension of consciousness that bridges the worlds of the heavens, the sky, the land, and the underworld or the other world. Myth as a body or landscape speaks to ancestor mind, perhaps the bone memory passed on through specific practices, skills, gifts, stories, and powers from the ancestral past for the full flowering of the future ones. Myths also speak to pattern mind. Myths themselves are patterns which think and speak. Myth-telling involves a complex of entangled ecological patterns which must remain hidden. This is the taboo boundary here. Many of those ecological patterns must remain inaccessible to human manipulation, which is why they are therefore coded as sacred. They're symbolized and only revealed through initiatory experience. This is pattern mind, which Tyson Yunkaporta tells us sees entire systems and patterns that can awaken ancient and new knowledge for the community. One of the powers that myth connects us with are the animal powers. And sacred power was seen in the animal world. Quote, Our ancestors revealed the animals as teachers and guides to a world of mystery, thinking of them as creatures of power 
The first myths were about the powers and intelligences of animals. What the animals knew was considered sacred, end quote. This same ancient wisdom of the myth-tellers we can see in the Hebrew scriptures in Job chapter 12, verses 8 through 9. But ask the animals, and they will teach you, the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Ask the plants of the earth, and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you. The animals held stories of medicine and power and right ecological relationship that guided the uh, nature-based communities and how to live in right relationship. Even when it came to patterns in land cultivation, Levitical law is also rooted in an older myth in Leviticus chapter 25. It says, You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap. You shall not gather. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. End quote. In other words, good theology is good ecology. The relationship between working the land and resting the land is kept sacred. Can we feel can we feel all that has been lost? Can we feel modernity's catastrophic loss of myth? Catastrophic loss of life, of feeling, of connection. Can we truly grieve the loss of a world of such astonishing pattern, meaning, and magic? The portal to the imaginal, to the mythic, reaches out to us like mycelial threads, weaving through worlds, unfolding worlds within worlds. This portal that opened in me as a child never fully closed. The truth is I was privileged to be born into a home with access to an old wooded area. I was unintentionally allowed space unmonitored free play and unscheduled time every Saturday in summer to cross over ravines on old moss-covered logs to stumble through wet sword fern and get stung by needles to look up in awe for hours at the diverse canopy and the millions, millions of entheogenic colors of green that my brain could not possibly fathom the pungent fragrances of the virtuous cycle of decay, death and regrowth, the hairy animal feel of moss and usnea, the rubbery grotesque feeling of mushrooms absorbed wisdom through my skin and my senses. Our lives are myth-shaped. Our cells and bones are encoded with silent roots of memory, of landscape, of wild animal, of sky and earth deities, of journeys, of rituals, of battles, of dying and rising. We are threaded through with a kind of resonance waiting to awaken in our bodies and imaginations. It is that deep, astonishing, devastating sense that I have always known this. I just didn't have the language. And what would happen if we said yes? What would happen if we adventured out and descended inward? Would it be possible to stumble across a shaft of light in a far-off field under darkening clouds? 
to meet a particular feature in the land, a guide to our true life. Carl Jung understood that the primary adventure of his life was to discover his personal myth, the story he was born to live, and we can too. We each have a personal myth. We are here to live, a line in the greatest poem ever sung. And when we discover it, it is like hearing that single line of poetry cry out from our depths as if for the first time. A line from a stanza of a great living book of poetry, the book of creation, incarnating us. If you like what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash mythicchrist. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash mythicchrist. Mythic Christ offers online community for exploring the mythic structures of story, archetype, dream, and the deep imaginal realm, supporting the awakening of individuals who are sensing a collective longing and a desire to rewild these divine images in the sacred, spirit-breathed ground of the natural world. Patronage levels start for as low as $6 a month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site, including early access to new podcasts, downloadable guided practices for deepening your own journey, complimentary mentoring and DreamWorks sessions, early notification of courses, programs, discounts, and more. Thank you for supporting Mythic Christ. This episode references articles, songs, books, and other incredible sources I want to reference here. Sean Kane, Wisdom of the Mythtellers. John O'Donohue in his book, Anamkara. Tyson Yunkaporta, who wrote Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. Also excerpts from Rianne Eisler, The Chalice and the Blade, Our History, Our Future. John Moriarty in Dreamtime, and the lovely poetry of Reiner Maria Rilke from Book of Hours, Love Poems to God. Special musical credit for this episode goes to Two Hawks in his powerful album, Sends a Voice. Also to Nils Aslek, Velke Apaa, Johan Anders Bear, Essa Kutalainen, Seppo Pakunainen, and they're offering the voice of the Sami through their album Winter Games. Hope you enjoyed today's episode, and until next time, may you be open to the presence of mystery, the unfolding of the great dream that has dreamt you, determined to live the one line of poetry that is yours to live. Amen and awen. May it be so. (laughs) 